Section 14 of The World's Famous Orations, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. The World's Famous Orations, Volume 5. The True Conception of Empire by Joseph Chamberlain Chamberlain, born in 1836, elected mayor of Birmingham in 1873, elected to Parliament in 1876, president of the Board of Trade in 1880, president of the Local Government Board in 1886, colonial secretary in 1895 to 1903. The True Conception of Empire Footnote Delivered before the Royal Colonial Institute at its annual dinner in London, March 31, 1897. Printed here by kind permission of Mr. Chamberlain and the London Times. End of footnote It seems to me that there are three distinct stages in our imperial history. We began to be, and we ultimately became, a great imperial power in the 18th century. But, during the greater part of that time, the colonies were regarded, not only by us, but by every European power that possessed them, as possessions valuable in proportion to the pecuniary advantage which they brought to the mother country, which, under that order of ideas, was not truly a mother at all, but appeared rather in the light of a grasping and absentee landlord, desiring to take from his tenants the utmost rents he could exact. The colonies were valued and maintained because it was thought that they would be a source of profit, of direct profit, to the mother country. That was the first stage, and when we were rudely awakened by the war of independence in America from this dream that the colonies could be held for our profit alone, the second chapter was entered upon, and the public opinion seems then to have drifted to the opposite extreme, and because the colonies were no longer a source of revenue, it seems to have been believed and argued by many people that their separation from us was only a matter of time, and that that separation should be desired and encouraged, lest happily they might prove an encumbrance and a source of weakness. It was while those views were still entertained, while the little Englanders were in their full career, that this institute was founded to protest against doctrines so injurious to our interests and so derogatory to our honour. And I rejoice that what was then, as it were, a voice crying in the wilderness, is now the expressed and determined will of the overwhelming majority of the British people.
partly by the efforts of this institute and similar organizations, partly by the writings of such men as Froude and Seeley, but mainly by the instinctive good sense and patriotism of the people at large. We have now reached the third stage in our history and the true conception of our empire. What is that conception? As regards the self-governing colonies, we no longer talk of them as dependencies. The sense of possession has given place to the sentiment of kinship. We think and speak of them as part of ourselves, as part of the British Empire, united to us, although they may be dispersed throughout the world by ties of kindred, of religion, of history, and of language and joined to us by the seas that formerly seemed to divide us. But the British Empire is not confined to the self-governing colonies and the United Kingdom. It includes a much greater area, a much more numerous population in tropical climes, where no considerable European settlement is possible and where the native population must always vastly outnumber the white inhabitants. And in these cases also, the same change has come over the imperial idea. Here also, the sense of possession has given place to a different sentiment, the sense of obligation. We feel now that our rule over these territories can only be justified if we can show that it adds to the happiness and prosperity of the people. And I maintain that our rule does and has brought security and peace and comparative prosperity to countries that never knew these blessings before. Footnotes to the next paragraph. Prempe, the king of Ashanti, was overcome by an English force at Kumasi in 1895. A British protectorate was established over his kingdom in January 1896. Lobengula, the king of the Matabela, in 1893 was completely overthrown in battle by the British, who used Maxim guns. Frederick Courtney Sellus, the traveler in South Africa, who wrote several books describing his adventures in Rhodesia and elsewhere. End of footnotes. In carrying out this work of civilization, we are fulfilling what I believe to be our national mission, and we are finding scope for the exercise of those faculties and qualities which have made of us a great governing race. I do not say that our success has been perfect in every case. I do not say that all our methods have been beyond reproach. But I do say that in almost every instance in which the rule of the Queen has been established and the great Pax Britannica has been enforced, there has come with it greater security to life and property, 
and a material improvement in the condition of the bulk of the population. No doubt in the first instance, when these conquests have been made, there has been bloodshed, there has been loss of life among the native populations, loss of still more precious lives among those who have been sent out to bring these countries into some kind of disciplined order. But it must be remembered that that is the condition of the mission we have to fulfill. There are, of course, among us, there always are among us, I think, a very small minority of men who are ready to be the advocates of the most detestable tyrants, provided their skin is black. Men who sympathize with the sorrows of Prempe and Lobengula, and who denounce as murderers those of their countrymen who have gone forth at the command of the Queen, and who have redeemed districts as large as Europe from the barbarism and the superstition in which they had been steeped for centuries. I remember a picture by Mr. Sellos of a philanthropist, an imaginary philanthropist, I will hope, sitting cosily by his fireside and denouncing the methods by which British civilization was promoted. This philanthropist complained of the use of maxim guns and other instruments of warfare, and asked why we could not proceed by more conciliatory methods, and why the impis of Lobengula could not be brought before a magistrate, fined five shillings, and bound over to keep the peace. No doubt there is humorous exaggeration in this picture, but there is gross exaggeration in the frame of mind against which it was directed. You cannot have omelettes without breaking eggs. You cannot destroy the practices of barbarism, of slavery, of superstition, which for centuries have desolated the interior of Africa without the use of force. But if you will fairly contrast the gain to humanity with the price which we are bound to pay for it, I think you may well rejoice in the result of such expeditions as those which have recently been conducted with such signal success in Nyasaland, Ashanti, Benin, and Nupe, expeditions which may have, and indeed have, cost valuable lives, but as to which we may rest assured that for one life lost a hundred will be gained, and the cause of civilization and the prosperity of the people will in the long run be eminently advanced. But no doubt such a state of things, such a mission as I have described, involves heavy responsibility. In the wide dominions of the Queen, the doors of the Temple of Janus are never closed, and it is a gigantic task that we have undertaken when we have determined to wield the scepter of empire. 
Great is the task, great is the responsibility, but great is the honour, and I am convinced that the conscience and the spirit of the country will rise to the height of its obligations, and that we shall have the strength to fulfil the mission which our history and our national character have imposed upon us. In regard to the self-governing colonies, our task is much lighter. We have undertaken, it is true, to protect them with all the strength at our command against foreign aggression, although I hope that the need for our intervention may never arise. But there remains what then will be our chief duty, that is, to give effect to that sentiment of kinship to which I have referred, and which I believe is deep in the heart of every Briton. We want to promote a closer and firmer union between all members of the great British race, and in this respect we have in recent years made great progress so great that I think sometimes some of our friends are apt to be a little hasty, and to expect even a miracle to be accomplished. I would like to ask them to remember that time and patience are essential elements in the development of all great ideas. Let us, gentlemen, keep our ideal always before us. For my own part, I believe in the practical possibility of a federation of the British race, but I know that it will come, if it does come, not by pressure, not by anything in the nature of dictation from this country, but it will come as the realization of a universal desire, as the expression of the dearest wish of our colonial fellow subjects themselves. That such a result would be desirable, would be in the interest of all our colonies as well as of ourselves, I do not believe any sensible man will doubt. It seems to me that the tendency of the time is to throw all power into the hands of the greater empires, and the minor kingdoms, those which are non-progressive, seem to be destined to fall into a secondary and subordinate place. But if Greater Britain remains united, no empire in the world can ever surpass it in area, in population, in wealth, or in the diversity of its resources. Let us, then, have confidence in the future. I do not ask you to anticipate with Lord Macaulay the time when the New Zealander will come here to gaze upon the ruins of a great dead city. There are in our present condition no visible signs of decrepitude and decay. The mother country is still vigorous and fruitful is still able to send forth troops of stalwart sons to people and to occupy the waste spaces of the earth. But yet it may well be that some of these sister nations 
whose love and affection we eagerly desire, may in the future equal and even surpass our greatness. A trans-oceanic capital may arise across the seas, which will throw into shade the glories of London itself. But in the years that must intervene, let it be our endeavour, let it be our task, to keep alight the torch of imperial patriotism, to hold fast the affection and the confidence of our kinsmen across the seas, so that in every vicissitude of fortune the British Empire may present an unbroken front to all her foes, and may carry on even to distant ages the glorious traditions of the British flag. It is because I believe that the Royal Colonial Institute is contributing to this result that with all sincerity I propose the toast of the evening. Footnote. Macaulay's famous prophecy, in words almost identical, may be found in one of the letters of Horace Walpole. End of section 14. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa.